When I was in college, I'm realizing that most of my sermons this high holiday started like that. I began to seriously doubt the existence of God. As strange as it sounds, I was in the middle of leading High Holy Day services at Tufts University Hillel when I looked down at the liturgy that I was reading, and I thought, do I believe any of this? Imagine I'm standing up there reading one of the most iconic images from the High Holy Days, the prayer Unetanet Tokef, which we will hear tomorrow, a prayer that speaks about God judging our fate for next year, deciding who will live and who will die, describing humanity standing behind the angels in heaven gripped by fear at our unknown fate. And there I was thinking, How could I be saying something that I can't imagine is true? This moment kicked off for me perhaps my life's greatest crisis of faith. And in hindsight, as I'll hopefully show you tonight, I am so glad that I had that experience. Now, a little background. I wanted to be a rabbi since before I could remember. I have an early recollection of sitting there in religious school services in first grade, staring at my rabbi and thinking, I want to do that someday. (laughs) Soon where other kids played firemen, I bar mitzvahed my sister's dolls. (laughs) Naturally, I took all the steps that one needs to move forward on a path toward rabbinic school. I went to Eisner, a Jewish summer camp. I got involved in our regional Nifty chapter, and I chose specifically to attend a college which offered comparative religion as a major and four years of college-level Hebrew. But during that high Holy Day season, it seemed that the dream was beginning to crumble. I remember thinking to myself over that fall and winter about the many things that I knew that I could not believe. I would open up my pocket Torah commentary and think to myself, God can't be jealous, or God has no gender, or God has no body, or God can't command us to kill the Canaanites simply because they live in a land that we want. Soon I was ready to postpone my dream of becoming a rabbi until I could resolve the God question. It took until the following summer for me to sit with a rabbi at Eisner Camp and hear from him that it was okay to feel this way. It was during that brief conversation, sitting on the bleachers by the baseball field after my campers were all asleep, that Rabbi Eric Gervis told me a story that I had heard numerous times before, but I hadn't actually internalized. In the Torah, Jacob has been estranged from his brother for 20 years, and tomorrow they will reunite. Scared for what that meeting will bring, he sends his whole family across the Yabbok River, and he's left alone. Soon, a strange being comes and begins to wrestle with him. As Jacob begins to win the fight, the being asks him to let him go, since dawn is breaking and he needs to return home. Jacob, knowing that there was something special about his sparring partner, bargains with him. He says, I'll let you go if you bless me first. Turning to Jacob, the being says, quote, Your name will no longer be Jacob. Jacob, which means heel, since he was born grabbing onto the heel of his brother and fighting to be born first. 
but Yisrael, Israel, which means he who wrestles with God. Rabbi Gervis turns to me. The essence of Judaism is asking the exact questions and wrestling with the same doubts that you have been doing. You don't have to believe everything you read. The simple act of questioning doesn't make you an apostate. It's what makes you a Jew. Now that I've been in a rabbinic role for almost a decade, it's funny how many times I've channeled Rabbi Gervis's reassurances to others in my midst. There is no phrase that I heard more from people in our congregation during this first year when we talked about their Judaism than, Rabbi, I don't believe in God. Sometimes it's said by a strident 12-year-old. At other times, by a sheepish patient when I ask to pray with them at their bedside. I was taught by a professor when faced with these statements to ask them to describe the God that they don't believe in. And more often than not, I also don't believe in that God. I have a mentor who often quipped that you should never ask a congregation who believes in God because you don't want to know the answer. (laughs) It's a laugh line, but it's actually a false dichotomy because we actually haven't defined our terms. There are some here who are true atheists, believing that the phenomena that we experience can only be described by the chemicals that are coursing through our bodies. And if that is you and you are that atheist, there is a place for you here. There is no theological litmus test and your voice will always matter in the Jewish conversation. But much of the time, people use the term atheist to explain the fact that their spiritual worldview is too wide to encompass what they read about God in our sacred texts. And if that's your definition, I'm pretty sure I would number myself in that category too. Sadly, because God is so tied to classical Jewish images, which people may or may not agree with, Most rabbis actually stay away from talking about God altogether. It's a third rail. There are safer topics. Jewish ethics and values, interpersonal dynamics, family, forgiveness, all of which don't cause a large percentage of congregants to shift uncomfortably in their seats at the mention of a topic that they struggle to relate to. But the idea of God is central to Judaism. And to discount that is to lose an important part of our religion and our heritage. Talking about this problem, my mentor, Rabbi Rachel Timoner, confessed a few years back to her congregation, quote, because I know this about so many of you, because I'm trying to help you relate, I find myself avoiding the word God. The prayer says, it's good to give thanks to God. And I'll say, it's good to give thanks. The prayer says, you've loved us with a great love, Adonai, our God. And I'll say, you're loved by a great love. I have to admit that sometimes I do the same thing. My problem is that I'm quick to make God into an analogy rather than the focus of a conversation. Last week in our family Rosh Hashanah services, I found myself talking about the idea of chen which means grace in Hebrew. The fact that God loves you even if you've done nothing to earn that love. 
which is actually a central theme of the High Holy Days. But because I was nervous that others might not want to talk about God, I jumped ever too quickly to discussing the acts of grace in parenting, something more relatable and, yes, much safer. But that's actually not fair for you, and that's not fair for our rich Jewish heritage. As Rabbi Timoner continued, quote, we have made God a taboo in God's own house. Tonight, I want to challenge us to look anew at the question of God. Judaism is the record of 3,000 years of God wrestling. And the primary question our ancestors are wrestling with is what they mean when they say the word God. For some, God is the image put forth in the book of Daniel, the old man with the white beard standing above the clouds. This is the classical view of God that appears in paintings and movies. And I imagine it does speak to some of us. And if it does, that's wonderful. But for others, you might want something different. If you're in the later category, you should know that Judaism itself isn't monolithic on its definition of God. Maimonides in the 12th century saw God as fundamentally unchanging. And for this reason, God doesn't hear our prayers, he says, because to do so would be to change God. One moment God doesn't hear us, and the next God does. Instead, he explains, God is constantly pouring forth blessing like a fountain. And it is our responsibility to refine ourselves so we can become a vessel to catch that blessing. In the 17th century, Jewish philosopher Baruch Spinoza imagined that God and nature are one. For Spinoza, God is the substance that makes up the universe. Every person, every flower, every breath of air is an experience of God. In fact, it is God. Later, this thinking would lead Albert Einstein to proclaim that in a world of science, quote, there are only two ways to live your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle, and the other as though everything is a miracle. As time progressed, more and more thinkers expanded the universe of meaning contained within the word God. In the 20th century, Martin Buber taught us that God can be the space that exists between two people when they're having a profound and connected interaction. Mordechai Kaplan, the founder of Reconstructionist Judaism, told us that God can be the source of strength and creativity that pushes all of us and all of creation to reach our truest potential and virtue. Rabbi Harold Kushner, author of When Bad Things Happen to Good People and No Relation to Stephen, <laughs> saw God's power as fundamentally limited. For him, God doesn't have the power to make us well when we're sick or sick when we're well. Germs do that. Cancer does that. God does, however, have the power to make us brave and to walk beside us as we face the hardest paths of existence. But as much as these thinkers are helpful in expanding the universe of what the word God can mean, I have a confession to make. I've always found problems with trying to understand God from words in a book. Religious philosophy, which is what I've just been quoting, like all philosophy, can be helpful at times in expanding our vocabulary and framing our questions in new ways. 
But at other times, it just becomes logic puzzles and word games. Case in point, the famous paradox of omnipotence. Can God make a rock so big that God can't lift it? This was all the rage in the Middle Ages. (laughs) If God can do anything, then God should be able to make that rock. But then isn't God lacking if God can't lift it? Well, intellectually stimulating, these philosophical quandaries do little for my religious sensibilities. For this reason, we God-wrestlers have to reframe the questions about God. Instead of looking for answers that make intellectual sense to us and applying it to God, we must experience the world, interrogate moments of connection, transcendence, and holiness, and figure out where God might have dwelt in their midst. After that night of discussion with Rabbi Gervis, I became a student of theology. I attended whatever classes I could that would broaden my understanding of God. I took Jewish books out of the library and I searched them for answers. But as Harold Kushner writes in a different work, which I'll paraphrase, if studying theology is like reading a menu, then religious experience is like eating dinner. And I was still hungry. And then it happened. I hadn't felt any real connection to God in some time. In fact, the real catalyst to my crisis of faith had actually come a few months before that faithful high holy days, when during a program about God at camp, a teen turned to me and said, you don't really believe in God, do you? Tell me, you lead services. Have you actually felt God when you lead? And I realized I had no answer for her. As a young song leader and prayer leader, I just wasn't proficient enough at my craft to make room for God. My attention was on singing in key, my tempo, my capo, and that's where my mind was during services. It would take until the winter of my senior year when I was a little better at it, before I could be present enough in services to have an authentic religious experience in prayer. I was leading the prayer Shalom Rav with a melody many of us know different than tonight, the Kolba Seder melody. And there's a moment right before moving from the second verse into the chorus where there's a silence, a true pause before the final chorus comes in. In that moment when we stop singing, each of us inhaling before moving on, I felt God's presence rush in and fill the room. I'm going to be spending the rest of my life reflecting back on the nature of that presence, using theology and philosophy to explain what I felt that evening. But in that moment, it it mattered less what God was than that God was there. Since then, I've realized that many of my own moments of transcendence happen not at services, but somewhere else. Think back to when in your life, you have felt true moments of awe or when you have felt an organic and unexplainable connection or a deep love that seems to defy expectations. Was it on top of a mountain? Were you staring into a face of a child? Were you held up by something during a tragedy? Was it an experience with art or music? You can use a myriad of words to describe those moments. 
why be afraid to let yourself include God as part of that description? Surely if God exists, God is expansive enough to include your own definition. I've always loved the Hindu proverb about a blind king who rules a kingdom of blind subjects. He's heard in storybooks about this thing that's called an elephant, and he wants to understand it. And he brings one into the castle, and he asks his blind advisors to line up and to tell him about the nature of an elephant. And after spending some time feeling with their hands, they come back to him with the answer. One says an elephant is thick like a tree trunk. Another says it's smooth and it comes to a point like a strange shell. Another that it's large and floppy like the walls of a tent. And a final one says that it's narrow with a puff on the end, almost like wheat. In truth, an elephant isn't its leg, its tusk, its ear, and its tail. But also, each of these parts of the elephant is an authentic experience of the creature. The problem for these wise men wasn't the elephant per se. It was that their scope was narrow. Every metaphor in our prayer book, every vignette in our Torah, every philosophical treatise, every theological statement is one person or one era's attempt to explain their experience of God, their piece of the elephant. And just because someone once experienced God differently than you and wrote it down in your prayer book, attempting to put words to that ineffable experience using their own cultural references of symbols, that doesn't mean that your own take, your own words, your own metaphors are any less profound. They might have felt that God feeling far away and powerful in their milieu meant that God was king. You might feel the same, but you might use the words universe or cosmos. When we read something with which we don't agree, doubt should not turn us off to it. In fact, doubt itself is an act of faith. For rather than growing indifferent, doubt keeps us engaged in the struggle reminding us to keep interrogating our assumptions until we settle on something that makes sense to us. Despite being a rabbi, I don't have many answers about God. I I can't tell you why bad things happen in the world, though I have some ideas. I can't tell you what happens after you die, though I have some musings. And I can't tell you where God is or what God is or even how to find God, though sometimes I have a feeling. What I can tell you is that I need God. For it is in the pursuit of God that I explore some of the most fundamental questions in life. It is in God that I make way for things far bigger than myself. It is through God that I find a prism to see the holiness around me. This year, I want to ask, what if you allowed yourself to get past what you don't believe in and start exploring what you do? What if you embraced your doubts, but you let go of your cynicism? What if you let God mean life or love or hope or nature, and then you prayed for those things through the language of Judaism? I'm not sure I will ever feel done wrestling, but that's the point.
But in the meantime, I'll pray, I'll wonder, I'll hope, I'll marvel, I'll be amazed and surprised, connected and estranged, alienated but embraced. And in the meantime, I know God in whatever form, in whatever way, is smiling down on every single one of those steps. Gamar Chatimatova. I think it's fair to say that for many of us, we begin to know God more when we are in service of each other, when we serve one another, when we find joy in being there for each other. Serve God. Do it with gladness. Here we go. We hope that you'll feel glad as we sing this text to you. If do it, Hashem, if do it, Hashem, if do it, Oh, boy. 